Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Today's guest is quite an interesting individual, and the topic is cybersecurity with Adam Levine. Now, the thing about Adam is that he has a unique tendency to discuss cybersecurity at the level of consumers, at the level of business, and at the level of government. Because what all too often happens when you talk about things like password protection and so on, we tend to think of it as a consumer issue. But as the conversation with Adam will show, it cuts across all levels. In fact, it goes all the way to being a pillar of the armed forces. So Adam was at one stage when he was 27, the youngest director in the history of the New Jersey division of, I believe it was consumer affairs. And he's also a graduate of Stanford University and the University of Michigan Law School. And he's created many different companies such as credit.com, which I believe is now sold, that play in the space of understanding how to protect one's identity, one's credit score, one's portfolio of investments, and so on. Now, he's appeared in many different places. He's a well-known person and a well-known authority in this space. So I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Adam. It's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I am terrific, and I very much appreciate the fact you've invited me. It's actually a great time to be speaking to you. So I've been a longtime follower of your work, and one of the things I've noticed is when you see what's happening with COVID, there's been a huge push by companies to digitize their operations, whether it's e-commerce and so on. But at the same time, have we become too complacent in the way we are doing digital transactions. I mean, is it safe for us to be doing so many things online as the safety caught up with the hype? Well, I certainly think as innovation evolves, security has not kept up with it. But the other issue too is that you can have the greatest security in the world. And as an organization, you can be completely secure at 9 a.m. Yes. But unfortunately, someone clicks on the wrong link, makes a mistake, and you could be exposed by 901 and have a serious breach on your hands. Because again, as a defender, you need to get everything right. As an attacker, you only need to find one crack or crevice to crawl through for a few seconds, and then you're in. And of course, with COVID, the other phenomenon that evolved is the whole concept of working remotely. Yes. I mean, in the old days, you would be concentrated in an office environment that would be the security would be controlled and it would be easier to monitor systems yeah. and networks. Today, unfortunately, because or fortunately, depending upon how you view it, with the ability to work remotely, that creates an entirely new uh, paradigm in terms of what companies are dealing with uh, in order to be safe and secure. I've never thought about that. That's an excellent point. When we think about digital security, we think about the software, the coding, and so on. But today, you could have a banker working in Starbucks who leaves his laptop unattended for five minutes to pick up a latte, and anything could happen. So it's, it's introduced a whole different kind of risk that we've never considered before. Completely accurate. And, and the other issue, too, is that many people who work from home use shared devices. Yes, and That's oftentimes right. they're sharing those devices with their children and children can be weapons of mass destruction when it comes <laughs> to the family. Yeah. And not only that, but if you're using a shared device and malware gets into your system and then you log on to the system of your, the company you're working for, that malware can basically infect a network and then you can bring a company down all because a child saw something that was bright, shiny, new, exciting, clicked on the link and a whole world of hurt followed. So when I started working at home, I never really thought about the security around my Wi-Fi system. I didn't think of it as an issue. I don't think anyone thinks of that when they start working at home. So Clearly, some kind of fraud and, and attacks must have taken place. But doesn't this put a big burden on employees working at home to have to do all these things they're not trained to do and don't have time to do? 
it definitely creates a burden for them. And one of the suggestions I make to a lot of organizations is don't assume that your employees are going to get it right because they're human. Yes. So therefore, you need to think ahead. And one of the ways you think ahead is create an employee-only device, which means this has this device can only be used for work that all of the security that on this device, this is the software and yes. the like, is approved by the company, is installed by the company, and that you can't download anything onto your device, like, let's say, an exciting app yeah. that may not be so exciting when you find out it comes with unwanted or, or dark passengers, as they say, and that the company is pretty much in control, at least as to the security of the device. Now, this doesn't mean that someone may not lend it to a child and that child or another member of the family might click on the wrong link. But in general, you have to make it very clear that there is a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sharing this device or using this device for anything other than work. Now, that should be a little different when it comes to the concept of zero tolerance. If somebody in an organization makes a mistake, you want people to feel like it's okay yes. if they make a mistake to notify management and say, look, I may have clicked on the wrong link. The problem is that many companies don't know that someone did something that maybe they shouldn't have done. And that bleeds into the organization and can kill the organization. So people have to feel like they're part of a community that that community has a stake in the privacy and security of the organization, uh, that everyone contributes to it, and that everyone needs to be an active participant in it and take ownership of it. In my previous life, I was a management consulting partner, traveling quite extensively and always working on my laptop from restaurants and coffee shops and hotel lounges and so on. And I remember at the time, there was a company policy whereby we would have to have a different phone for work and a different personal phone. And we weren't allowed to download anything onto the company phone. It was very slim, very basic, just take calls and access email and so on. But that's, that's changing now. I've seen companies whereby they're allowing what they call a single phone policy, where you have one phone for personal, one phone for business. But how do you then manage all of the risks that come with that? And why is that shift taking place? Well, first of all, it, it's it's taking place because it's it's inconvenient for a lot of people to use two different devices. I mean, we live through a, an American political campaign where the one of the major issues in the campaign was that yes, one of the exactly. candidates had used a private yeah. email server and and then did everything on the same device. And I realize that it's it's more efficient to do things on the same device, but it's more dangerous. Not to mention the fact if you walk in the house with two devices, your spouse may say what is that device and why do you need another device? Yes. <laughs> uh, that's a whole host of other issues. But that being said, you really have to have a strict policy about this because so much is at stake. Just like when people say, well, why can't I save my user ID and password for every website I use? I mean, come on, it's faster. Yeah. And the answer is because in those few seconds that it takes you to log in to an account, you could be protecting your organization far more than being able to do something instantly. Because the whole concept of cyber is instant gratification can be extremely dangerous. So I just want to understand this point here. You're saying that you shouldn't keep a record of your password? Well, first of all, you should have a, a password manager. Yes. Uh, because I think that they're much more efficient and effective, or there are some people that like to use pass phrases. Yes. And if you use a passphrase, it shouldn't be a phrase that is a logical phrase. It yes. should be a phrase consisting of different words that are totally disassociated. And even then using symbols and numbers to replace some of the letters. But how do you remember all of that? Yeah, because that's you know, another area where people get themselves in a lot of trouble is they may come up with what they believe is a completely indecipherable password. Yeah. But then they use it everywhere and they yeah. forget that that indecipherable password could be exposed as part of a data breach where the company that they're using this password hasn't properly encrypted the data and hackers can see this and then just simply go everywhere and try everything, brute force attack and the like, uh, to get into those accounts that they believe this individual may be using and use that to leapfrog into their, their business or all of their personal information. 
But this must be so hard to manage because as an example, if I pick up my iPhone and I scroll through the app store, I see an app I want to download, it seems legitimate. I put it under my phone. I don't know the guys who developed it. I don't know if it's one person sitting in his apartment with the best of intentions, but everything is stored on a server running off his computer at home and it's not even encrypted. So it's right. a very difficult thing to do. But why don't people take it seriously enough? I mean, there must be horror stories out there of seemingly benign actions that led to terrible consequences for people. Oh, there are terrible consequences that come from benign. Just for example, if you remember the iconic breach of Target, yes, which was you know one of the big box retailers in the U.S., iconic retailer, and it's, they didn't go through the front door. They compromised someone working at the HVAC subcontractor to Target. And they use the access that that subcontractor had in, into the target systems to get in, to get into the point of sale system, to get into their databases. And a very important thing for everyone to realize is you may look in the mirror and see you yes, and say, I'm just a regular person. Why would anyone, or I work for a small company. Why would anyone want me or my company to be a target for them? Yes. And the answer is you may see you in the mirror but when a threat actor sees you, they're looking at Jay-Z, they're looking at Beyonce, they're looking at Adam Levine. You got what they want. And what they want is passwords, data, financial information, or you're the tributary to a much larger river. Mm. So their, their eye is not on you per se. They're, it's on your spouse, your employer, maybe your kids, depending upon where they work, maybe an organization with which you're affiliated. Uh, or your company. And uh, you are simply the, the conduit in. Yes. And the attack on Target, as an example, that would be, it wouldn't be opportunistic. That seems like an organized attack with professionals behind it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, there are, I, there's some that say it was China, some say it was Russia, some say it was North Korea. I mean, I think they've determined who it was. But, you know, the bottom line is, this is, there is a difference between sort of widespread blanket phishing attacks yes. where they just hope to collect somebody that's going to fall for it. And more and more now, they're very targeted attacks where they zero in on an organization and then they study the organizational chart of that organization. And as an example, you may work for a specific company and be in a specific role, but you're on LinkedIn. And so are a number of other people on LinkedIn from your organization. And they can look at LinkedIn and they can determine, okay, if I use this person to get to this person, to get to this person, they, they do their research. They are very methodical. One thing about uh, folks these days, the bad actors, is they are creative, they are persistent, uh, and they are sophisticated. So I don't know much about the details on the theft with Target in particular. I mean, I have seen other instances, but these so-called bad actors in inverted commas, do they, what are they hoping to gain from this? Is, is it data? Is it ransoms? It's a variety of things. And come to think of it, it was a Russian hacking group that went after, went after uh, Target. So they went shopping um, at Target, basically. They went shopping at Target. Yes, they did. And, um, and they're after all of the things that you mentioned. They want data. They want access. They want the ability to, if they wish to, put ransomware on uh, the computer because they get paid faster. Yes. You know, and they're also looking for intellectual property, trade secrets, or if it's a government agency, they may be looking for spies, for instance. I mean, there, yeah. were, there were people who felt that the attack on the Office of Personnel Management in Washington, D.C., you know, originally it was like, oh, they just wanted to steal 21 million social security numbers and get access to these sensitive personnel files. Well, that was part of it. But the reason was because it was an intelligence gathering operation. Because after that, there were attacks on hotels and airlines. And it, it, uh, it at least has been speculated that all of that information put together could help a country determine who might be working for the intelligence community and where that individual was and when they were there. So, you know, every hack has some theme behind it. It could be a state-sponsored hack where it's espionage, intelligence gathering, or in the case of certain countries, it becomes a, a line in their budget because they're generating revenue by selling the data that they get their hands yes. on. 
So you have state-sponsored, you have for-profit hackers, which are in many cases just purely economic. You have cause hackers, and that's because someone is upset about something and they want to take down an organization uh, in order to send a message. And then they because then you have the because I can hackers, which is they would be able to, they want to be able to brag within their community, look yes. what I did. So it's a much more complicated world than we think. In fact, it's almost as if when you have a hack that takes place with for Target, for example, and I apologize for using Target as such a big example here. Oh, sure. We don't know what the consequences are going to be because we don't know who broke in and why they broke in. Correct. Oftentimes you don't, but more and more they're getting better at determining who did it and why they did it. And, you know, just for example, with ransomware, you see that there's been much more aggressive enforcement now yes. uh, by uh, countries that are kind of banding together. Now there are, of course, countries where hackers are not only beyond the pale of the United States or um, NATO countries of the EU, and they are under the protection of, or at least operating with the tacit approval of a particular government. So, you know, you have that situation as well. But this must be something that's happening across the world. If one country invests in this capability, others are going to follow suit. It's an arms race. No, it is definitely an arms race. It is, it is definitely a situation where there, there could be theoretically a cybergeddon one day, Yeah, which is where uh, someone gets into real critical infrastructure. Of course, there was a story not too long ago about a really funny debate that was occurring between an agricultural uh, combine and a group of uh, ransomware group where this agricultural gr uh, group was saying, hey, you know, we're part of critical infrastructure. And the ransomware group was saying, no, you're not. <laughs> and they were going, well, no, no, because we're, we have to do with agriculture yeah. and agriculture is part of food processing and people need to eat. It's critical. Like when JBS went down. So it's, uh, you know, you will see these stories and some of them are fascinating. Some of them are hysterical. Most of them are terrifying and sad. So sometimes if I'm just taking an example to prove a point here, mm -hmm. if we read a, a story about Delta Airlines, for example, experiencing some outage on its computerized booking system. That yes. could very well be an attack. We just don't know. It could be an attack. It could be a ransomware-related attack where, you know, again, with ransomware, the question is not how much is your data worth out there on the dark web, but how much is access to your data worth to you? Uh, we saw that with the national health system in uh, in Britain when that went down. And I think in Ireland, the, the, yeah. the, their health system went down and they were reduced to pencil and paper and lives were in jeopardy. Yes. So it depends upon if someone is just wishing to sow chaos for the purpose of sowing chaos, that's one thing. If people want to sow chaos for the purpose of actually doing something incredibly destructive uh, and putting lives in harm's way, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. And there are different groups. Remember when, when at the beginning of COVID, there were a number of ransomware combines that, that took the position, uh, we will continue to do what we do, but we will not do it involving any institution that's health related. So there is uh, an ethical compass there somewhere. Yeah, they said we have a code. Uh, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people uh, in their line of work who didn't have a code. So even if some groups refrained from it, other groups uh, exploited it and profited from it. Uh, so, you know, it really depends upon the group. And as you know, they're not necessarily completely structured organizations. They come together for certain projects, many of which are on the dark side, yeah. and then they disperse and then they, uh, they reconfigure themselves uh, doing other things. So, so uh, it's fluid. It's very fluid. It says very hard to pin down, very hard to go after them. What about the, the, the data that's taken? There must be some marketplace for this data. Oh, there are. In the dark web, there's a marketplace for data, and it actually has prices attached to it. And it's everything from fulls, F-U-L-L-Z, which is everything on an individual's life, mm -hmm. uh, to, for instance, millions of credit and debit cards are stolen and sold on the dark web every day by different categories, which is you know, what is the available balance you can get your hands on? Or are there, is this rewards related? Yeah. Um, or uh, by zip code, because if you steal by zip code and then you use it, it is perhaps a little less likely that it will be picked up by bank tracking systems 
depending upon where you live, work, and normally shop. That's why we suggest to people that they get what's called transaction monitoring, which notifies them every time there's a transaction in their accounts. Good for companies too. When transactions are done in their account, they get notification of it because the bank may miss it, but hopefully they won't. That's interesting because when I go anywhere and I'm making a trans, I'm doing a transaction outside my regular habits. I do get an email from the bank saying, "Hey, this went through. Was it you?" and so on. But this correct. is but, pretty scary. But that's outside your pattern. Yes, outside uh, my pattern. Correct. If it's inside your pattern, they may they may miss it. They may see an ATM withdrawal that occurred around the corner from your uh, house or your yeah. apartment and go, well, that's normal, but it may not be. So it sounds to me here like it's a cat and mouse game whereby the institutions or some cases individuals put together protocols to prevent these kind of thefts. And then the bad actors figure out the protocols and work around it. Every single time. It's like the, the old saw with the stock market. Every time you think you figured it out, you find out that you didn't. And yes. in the case of cyber, every time we think we figured out what the problem was and moved to solve it, uh, somebody is clever enough to figure out a way around it. That's why with ransomware in particular, you'll note that over the years, every time a particular strain of malware is discovered and they come up with some kind of solution against it, all of a sudden they find out that someone tweaked it just a little bit yes. that made it made it undetectable. Yeah, it and always makes me think about things like artificial intelligence, because at least now the algorithms and code, there's a human there that controls things and can pass through it and understand it. But what happens when we have software thinking for itself and we don't know what's going on? It's a whole well, that's kind of like the difference between AI and machine learning is machine learning requires somebody to be involved at, at, at where AI kind of is off on its own, on its own world. And that's the scary so, part. Yes, that's true. Because if someone tweaks the code, you don't even know it's been tweaked. That's it's correct. Operating Until... the way it's meant to be operating, thinking for yep. itself. So as an individual, let's look at this at different levels. As an individual, what should we be doing to protect ourselves? Well, I've, I put a framework together in a book I wrote called Swiped, and it's called the three M's. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, minimize your risks of exposure, reduce your attackable surface? Not easy as it is, but certainly in a world where you have billions of Internet of Things devices growing geometrically, all tracking, uh, in some cases, eavesdropping, sending information back, arguably, to manufacturers. But unfortunately, people hack in. They come with default passwords that are for sale on the dark web or something as simple as admin, which someone yes. can figure out. And most people don't change those passwords when they get them. So you have all of these billions of devices. We are living in a, I know there are, in some countries, it's considered a surveillance society, yeah. but even in countries where you don't have a surveillance society, which are very few, you still have a surveillance economy. And so how do you reduce your attackable surface in that? How do you monitor so you effectively know you have a problem as quickly as possible? And then how do you manage the damage? So examples I can give you in the US is everything from password protocols, long and strong passwords not shared across your universe of accounts, getting a password manager, which can not only uh, inventory your passwords if you choose to do them yourself, but uh, has the capability of creating passwords and they're multi-platform, so it's it's either a drop-down or, you know, depending upon yes. what kind of password manager you use. The second thing, multi-factor authentication, which is it relies on either something you have, something that's you, like a retinal scan, a thumbprint, or something you know, which are security questions. The only problem with security questions is most people answer them honestly. <laughs> so as a result, uh, and most people post voraciously on social media. Yes. And as a result, anyone following them can ultimately figure out what their what their passwords are. So I would say lie like a superhero, Superman, <laughs> Batman, they wouldn't be telling yeah. you who they are, vice versa. Not authenticating yourself to anyone that contacts you. If Give you're me an example of that. Give me an example of that. That sounds quite important. Okay, well, you get a call from the Internal Revenue Service in the US. First of all, they don't call. Yeah, they don't call. They, and they don't answer they the don't, phone as well. <laughs> 
Right. They don't answer the phone. They don't text. They don't email. Yes. But you get a call from someone representing themselves to be from an organization that terrifies you, like the IRS. Yes or the police department, or the jury commission, or you get a call from someone representing themselves to be from your bank. We've had uh, cases where someone would call and say, Bob, you go, yeah, is is this your, this is your credit card, right? And you go, well, yes, because they already said they're from your bank. You looked at the caller ID on your phone. It says the the name of the bank. And then they say, uh, okay, and this is the expiration date on your card, correct? Now, would you just flip over your card and and read us your security code, because we want to make sure that you're really you. I like that. They tell we had a case with somebody who's a very sophisticated trader in the U.S. during the trading day who gets a call from the IRS. They seem to know an awful lot about him. And they say to him, by the way, these are the last four digits of your social just to prove you're you. Tell us the first five, which he did. And he said, when he mentioned the fifth digit, he suddenly said, I got a call at him. I messed up. So, you know, we've seen things like that. So don't authenticate yourself to someone. Don't just randomly click on links or open attachments. We've, we've seen where people get something they think is from a, a senior manager in their organization as saying there's an attachment involving a new compensation plan or whatever it is, our new security plan, and they click on it. And all of a sudden, malware gets into the network of the organization. So always independently verify where an email or text comes from or phone call. And then you make the call directly to that organization. Uh, Or if it's in your company, you call the person who supposedly sent you the email and say, did you send me an email? And is this what you requested? Because we've seen case after case after case where people go, I never sent that. What are you talking about? There was a case uh, in Europe not too long ago of someone uh, who was the CEO of a portfolio company receiving a phone call from someone who was the head of the parent company, and they knew this person's voice. They'd heard them speak, and this person requested that they wire $200,000 to a designated account, which they did, only to find out that it was a deep fake audio, the money was gone, and they were fired. That's incredible. Deep fake. Deep fake. I've seen it, I've heard about it, but I've never seen an example whereby... It's been used just in a conventional way. It's always seemed something science fiction almost. It's going to come one day, but it's already arrived. Well, you know, AI was science fiction. It's here. Machine learning was science fiction. It's here. The concept of attacks on critical infrastructure for years was the stuff of science fiction. It's here. Uh, so, you know, we're we're there now. We're there, and it is way past midnight when it comes to organizations properly securing themselves and governments and organizations sharing threat information. The most important thing that you can do is train, train people so that they understand what the threats are, what the red flags are, what they need to do about it, and then put them in an environment where they feel comfortable in talking to each other and to uh, senior management about it. I think one of the challenges that we have with societies, whenever discussions like this come up, it generally appears in the consumer finance section when it's also a national security issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And more and more people are realizing how much of a national security issue it is, especially with all of these, these ransomware attacks. I mean, now they're talking about this new problem that is considered a 10 out of 10 vulnerability, uh, which was uh, log4j. Uh, and this is where you're dealing with open source software. Yes, which, as you know, built by volunteers, released yep. to the public for free, uh, monitored by volunteers, patches issued routinely. Because again, if you think about the internet, the internet is really an iterative thing. It's a process, yeah. and that you create, it breaks. You fix it, you improve it, it breaks. Someone figures out a way in. You figure out a way to secure it. It could break. So it goes on and on and on. Here is a situation where it's, this is software that is sort of a living, breathing part of the internet that people use, and it has to do with giving you visibility into the log files of an organization. Uh, And unfortunately, a, a vulnerability was discovered. They issued a patch. There was a flaw in the patch. They issued a patch to that. And because it's coming at the holiday season, not every company can 
apply that patch yes. quickly. So it's kind of like you have a zero day exploit where the time to act was yesterday, yeah. but most people won't be available until the day after New Year's. So, and these are the kinds of, of threats and issues that we face. So it's, um, it's almost scary if you're the chief digital officer of a company to realize that there's just so many angles that can be used to exploit, even if you have the best software and the best systems, which is impossible to have, there's always going to be some flaw, a mishap from an employee's side whereby right. they either open the wrong thing, download the wrong thing, share their phone. Anything could lead to problems. Even the most benign thing whereby you, you download an app that may yep. have some vulnerability in it. It was not intended to be that way, but it then creates a backdoor into your phone. No, and, and what happens is these weapons, because a lot of technology has been weaponized mm -hmm. uh, for the benefit of, the, of threat actors, is... The consequences are intended, but the way they get in often represents the unintended consequence. So, you know, people can't think of everything at every moment of every day. You know, I try to liken it to the fact that we all have day jobs. Yes. We work for somebody, we run a company, we're raising a family, we're involved in educational pursuits, we're involved in philanthropic pursuits. That's our day job. The people that we're up against, we are their day job. And uh, I was involved, our company was involved in doing election security, working with a mm -hmm. number of states. And if you think about it, you're the, let's say you're the secretary of state or the, the person responsible for information security of a small rural county in a small Midwestern state. And you find yourself facing off against Russia, China, North Korea. Uh, it's not a fair fight. No. And you're not going to win you're not going to win. And, you know, one mistake, like Bruce Schneier, who's considered a lion in the cybersecurity world, the incredibly brilliant guy. And, you know, his comment was that if you think that throwing money at technology is going to solve your security problems, then you don't understand the, the technology and you don't understand the security issues, period. Because it's all about humans and we're fallible and we are imperfect and we make mistakes. We just make mistakes. And threat actors are absolutely counting on that fact. Distraction leads to vulnerability. Vulnerability gives them the opening and the opening gives them access. It's interesting you say that because I'm thinking through, trying to recall the press releases and the responses companies have put together after a major data breach. And it's almost always a situation of them spending more to increase their IT budget to put in place better processes and technology. But the human element is never discussed. Never, never. It's and never it's, all about, it's all about training. Now, and in the US, of course, we have a very bifurcated system. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't have a national breach notification law. So as a result, you have about 54 separate jurisdictions between states, territories, commonwealths, cities, and they all have different laws. And as an organization, now you're facing this. It's terrifying. So organizations have to implement the same three M's, which is you know minimizing yes. risk, monitoring, managing the damage. And I can talk about both humans and companies. Yes. But with companies, it's all about, uh, do you segment data? Do you have uh, password protocols? Do you use multi-factor authentication? Are you training your people, understanding that your employees represent your worst nightmare and yet your best friend? They are the first line of attack, but yet they are also the last line of defense. And you know, now we talk about zero trust environments where it's not like you build a moat and hope they don't get in. And if they get in, you're doomed. It's more like you try to protect the data when, when it's coming in and then protect it through the entire cycle that it's in. But, you know, again, minimizing your risk of exposure, the things you would do is you would only keep data as long as you needed it. And you would only collect the data that you absolutely needed. And then you would restrict access to that data on need to know and need to use within the organization. Then with, with monitoring, it's everything from not using the concept of patch and pray. Yeah. It's more like we have a vulnerability assessment and management program. This is how we do it. This is when we do it. This is how frequently we do it. We have strict protocols. 
like for instance, the big, the big hack at Equifax, there was a warning signal sent, a patch had been issued. It was, they were directed to apply the patch. Somebody forgot to apply the patch. Nobody was properly monitoring to know they didn't apply the patch. And they basically exposed the information of 150 million people, which is now that's a number. That's, that's a number. big number. And then managing the damage, which is so important. This is everything from organizations doing what they call tabletop exercises, which is you prepare for the incident. You try to come up with every uh, possible point of access that you may have. You also map your data so you know where it is within your organization. So many organizations don't even know what they have. And even if they have yeah, an idea true. of what they have, they don't know where they have it. So you do these exercises. And then when the inevitable occurs, because unfortunately, breaches have become the third certainty in life behind death and taxes. When the inevitable occurs, you are as ready for it as you can possibly be, that you know what the call tree is, you know who you have to notify, you know how you have to notify them. You also, this is a, a company-wide effort. It's not just the IT department. This has got to be HR, legal, IT, communications, outside cyber organizations, outside communication organizations, because if a company has an issue and they do not respond urgently, transparently, and empathetically, they're going to be in trouble with the regulators. They're going to be in trouble with the class action lawsuit attorneys. They're going to lose client trust. They're going to lose partner trust, and they could even lose vendor trust. And now it becomes something from what would have been a really bad incident, but that was well handled to a near extinction or extinction level event for an organization. It would seem to me that it would be better if companies and individuals who experience these problems came forward publicly, because then you could see what is happening and you could look for patterns and you can understand what are the best practices the so-called bad actors are using. But on the flip side, most people are embarrassed to talk about these things. Absolutely. I mean, we have a podcast called What the Hack with Adam Levin. And the, the point of it is that we have people come on who share what they live through, whether yes. it's the uh, chief information officer of an organization that was hit with ransomware, and he performed brilliantly, uh, to individuals that have fallen for catfishing attacks, or they've been scammed by different imposters for different things. They've fallen for gift card scams. The list goes on and on and on. Apartment scams. And people are willing to talk about it. And it's, it's the concept of creating a shame-free zone, which should be mm -hmm. what organizations do. And the government does, which is, if you're a company, you had a problem, tell us. We're here to work with you. Now, I know, because we work with the FBI, the FBI is out there soliciting companies saying, talk to us, get to know us, and get to know how to contact us, who to talk to. If you have a problem, our goal is not to hurt you. Our goal is to help stop the bleeding and protect your clients and customers, your employees, your organization from a disaster. So it's really all about threat sharing. Now, I know there are lots of ISACs, which are uh, individual organizations made up of members of a particular segment or sector, and they share information and they share, they do threat assessments and they share threat assessments. And if you remember, uh, one of the problems that happened, like, for instance, with the NSA, with Eternal Blue, which was the uh, one of the malware disasters that occurred that led to WannaCry and a number of other ones, was they were collecting information on vulnerabilities, but they weren't telling anybody about them because obviously, if they knew what the vulnerability was, they, yes. could, they could better protect themselves against it and go after threat actors because they could keep an eye on things. Unfortunately, what happened is many companies were hurt and many millions of consumers, employees, customers, partners, they were hurt because nobody was sharing the information. So there's now a policy for much more information sharing uh, than there was before. That's interesting because most people are so embarrassed to talk about this that they would rather keep the information to themselves and help other people but they don't understand yes. that by sharing more, everyone wins in this. 
sharing is caring in this it, it, just like scaring is caring as far as i'm concerned we have to scare people in order to understand the dangers they face and they have to be willing to talk to people about it the only way we're going to find a solution is we have to determine what the problem is and each one of these vulnerabilities is a problem and you know a friend of mine recently said and i thought it was it was very uh, very insightful he said you know the whole concept of the internet process you have situations they're not crises but because we don't face these situations head on and handle them routinely they become a crisis there's actually a w- good way of thinking about it in fact sometimes these are early warnings of a flaw to be fixed before it gets really bad correct it's like cancer it depending upon the kind of cancer it is if you catch it early enough it's treatable you go into remission and you you may ultimately be cancer free depending upon what it is but it's all about catching it early treating it and then monitoring the treatment to make sure you did you did the right thing yeah i mean i think one mindset to have and i remember speaking to this with clients as well in the digital space is that if your company is going to be around for a good few years and you're going to be continuously investing in technology you should use this as almost a battle testing routine whereby every time something goes wrong it gives you a chance to relook at your processes improve things make things better and you can absolutely only, you mm-hmm. can only get better by going into actual combat as opposed to through simulations and you should see this as an actual combat opportunity you, you want to avoid it as much as possible but when it happens try to get as much as you can out of it to improve yourself and i think a lot of companies don't see that they just see it as a crisis to be avoided and you know, swept under the rug as quickly as possible as opposed to using it as a chance to really go down into the nuts and bolts and find out what happened and what they could have done better you know that's why there should be incentives and uh, you know beyond the whole concept of my incentive is i didn't lose all my employees and i didn't lose all my customers or my partners yeah. there needs to be a, an incentive system just like you know i i've said to certain colleagues of mine who are in congress i said look you instead of figuring out ways to beat companies to death you need to figure out for instance tax credit for companies that do it right yes especially because a lot of companies just can't afford to do things right they can do simple things and they should be doing simple things like you know penetration testing and all the yeah. educating and all the things we talked about and having a damage control program but they can't afford it so you you really have to make it find a way to help them afford it now that another part of the process is that it is mandatory that information security and IT always keep the C suite and the board of directors involved because mm-hmm. they have to know what's going on so that if they are involved and they know what's going on and when you come to them as someone in information security and ask for things they understand why it's in the organization's best interests to actually pay for these things and do it even if it's something like for instance we need to have work only devices that we supply to our employees and people will say oh my gosh that's expensive that is nothing compared to the yes. reputational and uh, and uh, cost as well as the actual dollars and cents cost of becoming victimized because you didn't train your people correctly that you you may not have had the right monitoring you may not have been paying attention correctly you may not have had uh, controls in place so that if something went wrong that you could move very quickly uh to solve the problem it is always surprises me as we become more and more digital and as we compete with other countries for these skills there's no national cybersecurity register of past events that companies voluntarily submit information to so every other company can benefit from this information right now if you're in the cybersecurity space and if you're a company that needs those skills you've got to rely on hiring the right people making sure they have the institutional knowledge and can bring it in as opposed to there being some kind of federal support in this right that's important uh, for sure the other thing is that we need to encourage more training for people to become cybersecurity professionals i mean we have a shortage in this country alone of over i think 1.5 to 2 million people that we need big that number. we don't have because they're not trained yet or if they go to work for the government they're stolen away by private industry and then you know we need as many hands on deck as we can 
uh, through Cyber Command and a lot of the organizations in, in Washington that are privacy and security related as well. So we have to focus on that. Education is absolutely critical. And I know there's, you know, there's all debates going on in the U.S. about, uh, you know, support scholarships and everything else for education. I think we need a lot more support scholarships for people uh, at universities who are focused on cybersecurity, because if something goes wrong, which it inevitably does with cybersecurity, the, the community that it impacts is staggering. And it could result in, you know, an attack on, on infrastructure that could uh, really derail a lot of things. So we spend about, what, $750 billion on our military, but we have a million to two million manpower shortage of cybersecurity experts defending basically industry. That's kind of staggering differential. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, also, you know, the budgets are increasing now for in Washington for cybersecurity. Yes, thank it's God, still a much lower amount. Way lower, way lower. And uh, I mean, you know, we had a former uh, president uh, in his administration who, frankly, didn't think that was a big deal. They got rid of the cybersecurity advisor in the White House. They uh, they did. I think for the State Department cybersecurity program, they never funded it. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, why would you do that? What were you thinking? Yeah, because um, if you think about it, in a manner of speaking, cybersecurity is one of the pillars of the armed forces. Oh, it certainly is now. I mean, in the old days, when you would see recruiting commercials for the armed forces, you never heard the word cybersecurity. Never. And now in every single ad that they go out of their way to make sure that you hear the word cybersecurity. So that's the marketing, but yep. in terms of the actual focus, it's still seen as one of the lesser children in the armed forces. It is, it is. It'll and, take and time to build it out, invest and so on. Oh, absolutely. And the other issue too is that they just, there was also a disarray is that, that there were 62 separate agencies in the US government that had different cybersecurity people. And you say to yourself, isn't there a way for, I mean, isn't there a way for us to be able to work together to come up with a more uh, unified structure, which they're now in the process of doing. Yes. And now we have CISA, uh, you know, which is, is a lot tougher. But I mean, there were a lot of federal agencies that hadn't implemented something as simple as two-factor authentication until there was literally a crackdown on the agencies by saying, you have a timeline, you have to give us exactly, you got to tell us what you're doing. And there are certain things that we demand that you begin doing that you haven't been doing. And we're shocked that you haven't done it. So the goal is to not necessarily unify these 62 agencies, but to get them working in concert. They have to work in concert, but there also has to be more command structure when it comes to this. You, you just can't have you know, separate organizations running off, having separate protocols with separate standards, which yeah. they're now unifying. But you have to do that. You have to do that. Is it a fair assessment just by listening to all of this and seeing what we're seeing in the press on a daily basis that it seems the private sector is more organized when it comes to cybersecurity, at least in the United States, than the government? 1,000% correct. 1,000%. And in fact, the government now is taking advantage of more public-private partnerships than they yes. have before, which is very, very important, especially because there has been a brain drain of people leaving the government going into private industry because they're getting paid a lot more and uh, the requirements are a little bit different. So uh, yeah, we, we really have to have these partnerships. We have to have threat assessments. We have to have threat sharing. We have to find a way to unify reporting requirements because it is it is beyond cumbersome for an organization to face all sorts of different notification requirements, timing requirements, yes. uh, depending upon the, the state or jurisdiction they're in. Uh, then, of course, you have the whole other uh, situation with cyber liability insurance. Yes. Uh, whereas the insurance companies initially were, yeah, we're there for you when it comes to ransom to now some of them are taking a position where we're not there for you when it comes to ransom because you are giving aid and comfort to the enemy of the United States who once they attack you, you yes. pay, they're going to come back again or they're going to go after other. You're encouraging them, you're supporting them. But this is another issue too with companies is if you're faced with what is a doomsday scenario, 
which is that maybe you didn't back up the data that you should have backed up. Yes. And even if you did back it up, you suddenly find out that the systems you thought were more resilient and robust may not be able to get you back up and running for six months to eight months. And you say, do I pay and I get back or do I not pay? And that's why there are a lot of organizations that pay because they need to be up and running. So if you're a healthcare organization and you're down, people could die. And then you could be in in another whole world of hurt. Uh, So you have that. Then, of course, the whole nature of ransomware has changed where it used to be, I come, I freeze your files. I even have a customer service department to help you figure out how to pay me. You pay me, I go away. Now it's you have ransomware as a, as a service, literally, where people develop uh, the ransomware and then they, they basically license it to other people and they get a piece of the action. And oftentimes the people they license it to may not know how to bring someone back from the brink after they've actually used the ransomware on their systems. So you have that issue. Then you have another issue where they say, well, okay, in the old days, we used to get paid, we go away. Now, what's it worth to you while you're paying us to go away to pay us not to release the data that, oh, by the way, we happen to have stolen as we froze your files? So it sounds like some very enterprising capitalists have gone into ransomware. And they've brought oh, a whole and there's a third models. and uh, oh, absolutely. And there's a third one, which is they then go to your customers and say, oh, by the way, we have your data. So even if they pay us, what's it worth to you to have us not release your data? I mean, we've had uh, cases with uh, now it's a, it's smaller, but it's to a lot of people. It's a big deal. Patients of plastic surgeons, they would do ransomware. They would sh- basically shut down a practice. The practice would pay, then they would say, what's it worth to you for us to not to release the information on your patients, they pay, and then they go to the patients. This happened uh, to several Beverly Hills uh, plastic surgeons, where they went to the patients and said, what's it worth to you that we don't release your before and after pictures? <laughs> so, wow, that's amazing. The sort of thought that's going into this, it's almost as a, there's a whole business behind it with follow up it's almost been productized, there's channels. It's, it's as if there's a real MBA here running things in the background. Oh, no, there, there's a whole different approach to this than there was before. And, there, and, and then there's other things like, you, of course, you know about when people file fake tax returns using yes. your social security number. You know, and this is in certain ways revolutionized crime because in the old days, people would make drug deals under street lamps in the middle of the night and run the risk of getting killed or arrested prosecuted, put in jail, whatever. Yes. Now people can sit in a motel room with their feet up on a table, wearing bunny slippers, typing in social security information, date of birth, address and the like of people, filing fake tax returns and making more money, at least at the more individual level uh, than at the, you know, the mafia or crime level. So with, the, with this whole problem with fake tax returns, the issue here is someone gets your real social security number and yep. they file a tax return on your behalf and get the refund. And then when you Correct. file your tax return, the IRS says we've already paid you. They, they basically say a return has been filed and you go, well, I, first of all, I'm entitled to a refund. And they go, yeah, but that was already sent to, the, to you. You go, but it wasn't sent to me. And it's like, well, yeah. But we operated with what we had. Now, <clears throat> the IRS is, is giving people PIN numbers, uh, even if they haven't been victims mm-hmm. of identity. It used to be in the old days, you had to prove you were a victim, then they would give you a PIN number. So every time you filed, you would have a unique PIN number. Now they're making those PIN numbers available to everybody, uh, which is important. But there's a third uh, tax issue out there, and that's where you get a notice from the Internal Revenue Service that you woefully underreported your income. And the reason is because unbeknownst to you, someone stole your social security information, got a job, and that income is being reported uh, yes. to your social security number. And you don't know about it, so... You don't know about it. And so what does the IRS do in that case? Well, when you... You have to prove you, it wasn't your income. You have to prove it wasn't your income. So how do you, you prove say, it wasn't your income? Well, you have to prove that you were a victim of identity theft. Which is very hard to do. It's becoming easier to do it. I mean, in the old days, you were absolutely guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And in fact, 
in the early stages of identity theft, it was viewed that the business was the victim because a lot of it was credit card fraud. Yes. The consumer was not the victim. So meanwhile, as a consumer, you, you would have your life turned upside down. You would have a negative credit report. You'd be in trouble, but you weren't the victim. You were just kind of collateral damage. And that's changed uh, today. But, and the other thing I, I, try, I tell people is, look, if you, you know, find out you have a tax problem, you deal with the IRS and they agree, you get a PIN number, they settle the issue. Don't think it's over because it's not about them. It's about the fact that someone had enough information about you to file your tax return, which means they have enough information about you to open fake accounts, yes. to get a mortgage on your house, uh, to perpetrate medical identity for theft on you, where someone using your information is getting medical treatment uh, or prescriptions or having procedures done, Yes, uh, but they think it's you. That's why one of the things people should be doing is when you get an explanation of benefit statement from your health insurer, look at it, read it. You may find out that it says it was you, but you true. know, looking at it, it wasn't you. And that's happened. We had a case with a woman, 72 year old grandmother living in upstate New York, that on the same day, her insurance, and it was Medicare, was charged for a sperm viability test and a pregnancy test on opposite sides of the country, neither of which would yeah. apply to her. So it's, you know, we were talking about cybersecurity, but there's a whole huge pillar around protecting your social security number, it seems that way. It is. And now there's, believe it or not, a huge pillar around protecting your cell phone number because yes. your cell phone it's is nice. more ubiquitous now than your social security number. And, and it's used for many things like banking in many parts of the world and so on. And multi-factor authentication. Yep. Yes. And that's the code is sent to that device. So you have to be careful. And, and I, it's very important for people to also think of it in, in a different way as well. With what I call the three portfolio theory. And that is, if you say to someone the word portfolio, the Pavlovian response is investments. Yes. But what people aren't considering is that we have other critically important portfolios in our lives beside our you know, professional portfolio or educational portfolio, or if you're in the entertainment business, your acting or modeling portfolio, but your credit and your identity yes. are both portfolios. And just as you would hope that someone who is professional would be managing your finance or your financial portfolio, mm -hmm. you have to be the professional manager for yourself of your identity and your credit, because you need to build it, nurture it, manage it, and protect it. Nobody knows more about what you do than you and would be sensitive to noticing something that wasn't you, that was claimed to be you. And that the issue with these portfolios is that if any one of them are compromised, it puts pressure on the others. If your investments are compromised and you're running out of money, you rely on your credit. If your credit is compromised, you may be forced to rely more heavily on your investments. You need the cash. If your identity is compromised, that will impact both your credit and your investments because it will cost you more for money. You will have less money to invest, and it could even jeopardize your ability to get a job, to get a security clearance, all of those things. It's such a fundamental thing that everyone thinks about every month. Everyone is thinking about this. What is my credit score? Can I afford this? Do I have enough money in my 401k? Right. But while they think about it, they do not think about it holistically with a plan in place. It's a very reactive strategy. That is correct. It, that if is nobody correct. says, how do I protect my identity? Because I need my identity for this and this and this. No, it's about, well, I saw an ad for a credit monitoring service. Somebody sign up. It's $14 a month. Nothing happened for 11 months. So let me cancel that. That's pretty right. much the way the... It's not just the consumer market, the corporate market also reacts in that way. When you look at cybersecurity, do companies invest enough? Do they see it as part of their identity? Is a retailer a retailer or is it a digital player? And Correct. The most important part there that you mentioned is both the company and the individual as to make this process of managing it part of their identity. It's not something they outsource or it's something they react to, it can become an asset if it's well-managed. If you can protect your credit score, think how much that saves you, provided you take good care of it. 
you know, when I was, I, I created a company years ago called credit.com, which I sold in 2015. And one of the things we try to say to people was that credit is your friend. And yes. of course, my colleagues would say to me, are you mad? Nobody thinks of credit as a friend. I said, but think of it in the friendship context. If you are there for your friend, your friend will be there for you. If you're not there for your friend, it won't be there for you. Yes. They won't be there for you. So therefore, you need to pay attention to your credit. You need to make sure if there's any issue that you resolve it as quickly as possible. You need to pay your bills on time. You need to not use too much of your available credit. You need to have a different mix of accounts. And it's you really need to, to be very conscious of it because it can, it can, be, in, it can be part of your uh, security blanket. Yes. But if you don't have it, uh, you will be incredibly insecure, just like cybersecurity. It, cybersecurity is not a, oh, I solved it, it's done. Everything's taken care of, I'm great. Cybersecurity is a marathon. It is a team sport. It is, it is also individual. And it is, is something where everybody has to work together and take, take ownership of it. And this is something that just like even training employees, it's not something where, welcome to our company, Here's a manual. It will tell you what you should and shouldn't do in order to protect the company. And then, oh, it's the one-year anniversary of when you came aboard. Uh, here's the newest stuff on cybersecurity. Cybersecurity and privacy have to be an ongoing conversation on a daily basis. Yes. I like this um, model of the three portfolios, credit, investments, and identity. It's a great way to frame it. And if People spend a month just focusing on each of them. Can you imagine what their lives would be like? Unbelievable. And just like, you know, when we talk about the middle M, which is how do you effectively monitor so you know you have a problem, you get your credit report, you yes. read your credit report. You don't just say, hey, look, I got my credit report. No, you read it. You look for what you didn't do, as well as what you forgot to do, you yeah. need to know, including, is this where I really lived? Because if I see a bunch of addresses that aren't me, then I know I may have a problem. You monitor your credit score. If it takes a sudden precipitous drop, it's only three reasons. You didn't pay a bill on time, you're using too much of your available credit, or you're a victim of identity theft. You sign up for transaction alerts, which notify you anytime there's activity in your accounts. You look for more sophisticated forms of monitoring, and you also read your explanation of benefit statements, because this is your life. And what I said when I was head of consumer affairs in New Jersey, and it holds true today, over 40 years later, and that is the ultimate guardian of the consumer has always been, is, and will always be the consumer. I like that. It's about taking ownership. The buck stops with you. As the CEO of, of Microsoft said a, a year or so ago, he talked about the whole concept of shared responsibility. Yeah. We know that government hasn't done enough. We know that business hasn't done enough. And we know the consumers haven't done enough in order to protect all, because you're not only protecting you, but you're also protecting your family, you're protecting your company if you exercise wise uh, cyber hygiene protocols. So you really need to do this. And we weren't trained for it as consumers. We didn't want it. It's not even fair that it's been dumped on us, but- you know, when they always say, well, it is what it is. Well, that's what it is. It is what it is. And it has to be a collaborative effort between business, government, consumers, and the media. We're all in this together. Adam, thank you so much. I think that this podcast is actually relevant when people tend to overspend, don't watch what they're doing. And typically, once they overspend and they have a hangover from that, they then have some momentum to start cleaning up things. Correct. And the, the important thing is, you know, why go through the agony of having to clean up the mess where you can actually prevent to some degree, it's not a slam dunk because sure. you'll always be vulnerable somewhere. But if you really conduct yourself in a way where you are protecting your privacy and you are protecting your assets, because this, your identity is your asset. Your credit is your asset. Obviously, your funds, your investments are your assets. This is all part of a whole. It's part of a holistic view of things. 
And you got to start early. You got to start your children early. They got to understand from the earliest age because they are all now digital natives. They yes. have to understand from the beginning what it means to have a password, what it means not to have a password, how you can be exposed. I mean, uh, the cases of child identity theft are legion. And it's, you know, when a young person becomes a victim of identity theft, and oftentimes it's because a member of their family stole their identity, that when they turn old enough to actually be able to benefit from credit, their credit has been destroyed. And it takes them seven years to put it back on track again. Wow. Seven years. That's a seven long years. time. 10 and years I'm... for bankruptcy, seven years for uh, credit issues. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have you. Listen, thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope this was helpful. It was helpful. I think our audience is going to like it. I like the way you humanize the, the, the subject, which can become very technical and boring. And that's why nobody actually follows it. But I think you may, I like the, the way we switched between corporate government and consumer, because as I mentioned earlier, this tends to be a consumer topic, but I wish more executives also thought about it. It's very important because you're protecting your company and you're protecting all of your consumers. So it is, it, it's all of us. Take care, Adam. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.